We've been working through the book of Acts, and we've come up to chapter 20, and we are in verses 17 through 38 this morning. And this is a unique portion in Acts. As you've noticed to this point, as we've walked through these first 20 chapters or so, and we've followed the church being filled up with the Holy Spirit, which the resurrected Jesus has poured out into them, they have been witnessing. And as the church's witness has gone forward, we've kind of zoomed in on these various speeches from Peter and Stephen and Paul. There are sermons and speeches all over the book. But today we come to a speech, a sermon that is unique. And you ask, well, what's the difference between this sermon and all the other sermons? What makes it unique? What makes it unique is that this is the only address in Acts that is spoken solely to Christians. Not only is it spoken solely to Christians, it's spoken solely to the elders at Ephesus, to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And so you might ask, what then do I have to learn from it? Since I am not an elder, I'm glad you asked. One thing is that you'll get to learn about the function and role of elders. One of the the big ideas of this text, it's the main idea in your insert, is that elders lead and guide the church. You'll get to see what an elder should look like. Some of these attributes that Paul brings out. And so you can see your outline, that elders should be with God's people, courageous, persistent, They should be guardians, dependent on God's gracious word, generous and loving. And the exhortation, after we get this picture of what church leaders or pastors, elders should look like, is for you to learn from your elders and to to love them and to know what they should look like. And so uh, this is a bit of an awkward message to preach from me because the exhortation is kind of like, well, love me. Reminds me, Chelsea, when we worked together at uh, TPC Wakefield Plantation, used to, in the evenings, when we were resetting rooms after weddings or events, would sing, uh, Love me, love me, say that you love me. Right? You ever heard that song? Love me, love me. And I would just, I'm like, shut up, Chelsea. Not into this right now. But this passage of Scripture does teach us of the importance of the role of church leaders. And I think that The application is for us to know what they should look like, to learn from them, and to love them. You'll see that the exegetical ground from which I take the main idea and the exhortation is that Paul is speaking to these men, and he's urging them to imitate his godly life, to be innocent and faithful, to trust God's provision, and in the middle there, to vigilantly guard the flock that has been entrusted to them. And so let's pray, and then we will begin this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, you have brought us to this part of Acts, that we might learn from it. Thank you for uh, giving me and Mike and David the opportunity to serve your church as elders. Thank you for the congregation here that loves us well. We pray that this word this morning would challenge us, all of us, as we seek to imitate the ultimate good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us. Lord, we pray that 
we would listen to your glory, that I would preach to your glory. I ask that I might preach a better sermon than I prepared, and that we all might hear a better sermon than I preach. Give us a sense of your presence with us now. We acknowledge that we are in your midst, listening to your word. We thank you for this great privilege. Let us not take it lightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 20, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. And so Paul is headed to Jerusalem. He's in a hurry. He wants to get there before Pentecost, and he deliberately does not stop in Ephesus. I think there are two reasons for this, right? One is the last time he was in Ephesus, there was that silversmith riot, and they could be pursuing some of those legal channels suggested by the city clerk. Paul could be someone that if he shows up in Ephesus, he might end up tied up in court. That, coupled with the fact that he is in a hurry and he knows all kinds of people in Ephesus. He'd been serving there for over three years, three-ish years. He's going to get held up. You know how it is when people, everybody wants to see Paul come to our house for dinner. Paul, it's so-and-so's birthday. Paul, can we get a minute for you? And so he says, I'm going to avoid all of that. I'm in a hurry. I'm going to go to Miletus. And then once he gets there, he calls for the Ephesian elders to come to him so that he might give them this speech before we move on to uh, the content of that speech that sermon to the elders i want to point out two things quickly one is that there are a plurality of elders it means there are more than one elder at this church in ephesus everywhere in scripture you will see the church in the singular and elders in the plural because there are supposed to be more than one we saw this earlier in acts and it's throughout the rest of scripture Subsequently, we do not see a single instance in all of the Bible where just one pastor serves as the leadership of a church. It's always in the plural, and thus our practice here of plural eldership. Second quick note, an elder is a pastor, is an overseer. These are all one office. An elder is a pastor, is an overseer. And this is made plain because Paul is speaking to these elders. He's he's preaching to them this sermon. And you'll see in verse 28 down there, there's a lot of neat stuff. I could preach many a sermon just on verse 28. But he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. That word can also be translated guardians, which I like it guardians better there, but it's episkopos. Maybe it sounds familiar. Episcopalian, right? Episkopos, overseer, someone who guards, someone who has authority, someone who pays watch. The point is you as overseers to shepherd the church of God. Some of your translations might have care there, but the word there is poimon. I probably just pronounced it wrong, but it's the word for shepherd or for pastor, right? And so these functions, these other ways that sometimes we refer to pastors, overseers, bishops, it's, it's all the same office. Elders are pastors who are overseers. And so those are the two quick notes. If you want more on that, I have preached in the past on these matters um, to a further extent. And you can find those linked in my manuscript after. I promise these would be quick notes. And so we move on into Paul's speech, starting in verse 
18. When the elders came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and during trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not shrink from or avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or teaching you publicly from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled, or bound is the literal translation there, bound by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see my face again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you. I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan or counsel of God. Paul's claim to innocence is grounded upon his faithful proclamation of God's word to the people in Ephesus. You see it over and over again that he is teaching. Right, Verse 20, he's proclaiming. 21, testified. Verse 23, warns. Verse 24, testify. 25, preaching. 27, declaring. Paul is an an active teacher, and so his innocence is grounded upon his ability to faithfully warn the people in Ephesus about God's coming judgment. What he's saying is if you, any of you, fail to persevere in the faith, if you fail to finish the course that God has set out for you, it's not my fault. I've taught the word of God to you. And he's picking up on imagery that comes to us in Ezekiel 33. He did this earlier in Acts as well. Maybe you'll remember it, but I'll read it to you. Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and tell them. Suppose I bring the sword against a land, and the people of that land select a man from among them, appointing him as their watchman. And suppose he sees the sword coming against the land and blows his trumpet to warn the people. Then... If anyone hears the sound of the trumpet, but ignores the warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his death will be his own fault, since he heard the sound of the trumpet, but ignored the warning. His death is his own fault. If he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. However, suppose the watchman sees the sword coming, but doesn't blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away their lives. Then they have been taken away because of their iniquity. But I will hold the watchmen accountable for their blood. As you can see what Paul is saying here, I've been a watchman for you. I've been sounding the trumpet that God's wrath is going to be poured out against sinners. And you need to repent of your sin. And put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if someone doesn't turn to Christ among you, 
If someone fails to persevere in the faith, I am innocent of their blood. We can kind of see his whole speech has been moving in this direction. He's basically saying, imitate me. If you want to be innocent in your ministry, Ephesian pastors, Ephesian elders, then you must imitate my godly life by being with God's people, by courageously teaching God's word, and by being persistent in the faith. So we see his faithful life among God's people in verses 17 through 19. You say, he's with, I was with you the whole time. I served the Lord with humility and tears and trials. Paul is not somebody who's inaccessible. It's an old phrase, uh, shepherds smell like sheep, right? And the idea is that good pastors, good elders, are going to be around their people enough that they're known. They rub off on each other a little bit. So we see that elders should be among the people. They should be with the people. They should be accessible. We also recognize that Paul is ultimately around the people in service to the Lord. He is not after selfish ambition or some kind of material gain. He is there because he loves the Lord and he loves the people. This is a good word not just for elders, but for all of us as church members. That we ought to serve the Lord by serving one another that we should live our lives in community together, that we should have real relationships. That we should follow that pattern set out in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so we can see that Paul in his ministry is humbly serving smiles and tears and trials. And these are things we should share with one another as Christ's body. And this is one of the good reasons that you need to actually belong to and come to, gather together with a church. Right? A TV preacher and your Bible by yourself on a Sunday morning doesn't cut it. Most of those guys are um, unorthodox to begin with. But secondly, you can't have church by yourself are just with God's people. So we see that elders are, should imitate Paul's godly life by being with God's people. We also see that they should imitate his courageous proclamation of the truth. Paul does not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel, the whole plan of God, even the sandpapery parts. Now, you know what I mean? Like, you put sandpaper and you run it on your skin, it kind of hurts. And some, some portions of the Bible feel like that on us. Right? And he says, he points out his courage in preaching God's word that they might emulate it because the temptation to avoid those sharp edges of Scripture is real. It is a temptation for pastors to never preach on the wrath of God. This is a temptation for elders to never preach about what what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality or authority or church discipline. This is a temptation for for pastors to not even teach what the Bible teaches about elders. These would be easy things to shrink from. And yet Paul holds up his life and demonstrates his courage in preaching all of God's word. It's what makes him innocent. And ultimately, he's not 
It's not aimed at pleasing man, but pleasing God. Brothers and sisters, cowardly pastors kill churches. Any elder or leader who is more concerned with the approval of man than he is the approval of God needs to resign from his position because the winds of culture will blow him all over the place. Way out of, way out of step with God's spirit and God's word. Spineless pastors enable their sheep, their congregants, to walk headlong into sin. They dishonor God and they bring guilt upon themselves. Elders, pastors, are to courageously proclaim the whole counsel of God. I think likewise, church members, we should be committed to hearing and learning the whole counsel of God. And we too should be willing to share even the hard parts of Scripture with our friends and our family and those we are in relationship with. All of us as Christians want to courageously proclaim Christ as crucified for sin and raised from the dead. Next we see from Paul's life that he is persistent. And this is another quality of a good elder. Look at verse 22 again with me. And now I'm on my way to leave, I'm sorry, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, bound by the Spirit. And again, I love the literal translation here, bound, because in the next chapter, Agabus is going to tell him, hey, you're going to be bound. He has his belt around him. And then Paul goes to Jerusalem and is bound. And his binding isn't ultimately from men, but from the Holy Spirit. It's ultimately from God. He's, he's bound by the Holy Spirit. And he says, I, I don't know what I'm going to encounter there, Except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every town that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. And this is unexpected, verse 24. I'm going to suffer. The Holy Spirit tells me affliction is waiting for me. But I consider my life. Nevertheless, I'm not worried about my life. I consider it to have no value to myself. Why? Because and I'm, let me, his purpose is not to preserve his life. His purpose is not to have a long and happy life and to live well into retirement. No. Paul says, my purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul says, my goal is not to keep my life safe. He says, I know the words of Jesus in John 12, when Jesus said in verse 24, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. and The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am there, my servants also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will will honor him. You see what, what Paul is saying is that if I were in love with my life to the extent that it, I served my life as my God, as my idol, then I would not be in service to Jesus Christ. 
He's saying, Jesus is worth more than my very life. And so I will die if I must, knowing that God will produce fruit, knowing that God will bring himself glory. And so I go. I will go. This is my purpose, to finish the course, to live out the destiny that God has written for me. Friends, no one brags about running a marathon they didn't finish, right? Is it the half marathon that's the 13.1 stickers? You've seen those on people's cars. Like they don't, if you're supposed to run a marathon or a half marathon, they don't pass out, you know, 4.2 bumper stickers for those of us who didn't make it the whole way. I mean, maybe they do. Participation trophies are a thing. But, but you get the idea. There's no credit for not finishing. Likewise, elders are those who have persevered. They are persistent and gritty in their following after Christ. Likewise, church member, you are to be persistent and gritty as you follow after Jesus. There are going to be times in your life where you want to quit. You must resolve like Paul. My purpose is to finish the course. There's no retirement from the Christian life. You don't just get to give up because you got older or because something hard happened. You have to finish. I don't know if this fits here or not, but I was really encouraged in Sunday school this morning. Uh, we were talking about encouraging one another from last week, and uh, somebody said to, to Henry, Henry, I'm just so encouraged that you're here. And, and he said, I can't hear anything but I'm just glad to, to be around the table with y'all. And he can hear me now because he's got a little sweet earpiece in there, I think. Maybe he's turned it way down. But my point is he, he's an example of somebody who's finishing well. Week after week comes and sits and spends time. He's thinking about how he can encourage the believer, how he can finish the course of the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, follow his example. Follow the example of Paul. Finish well. Dig in. Pursue Christ for all of your life. For all who endure trials will take hold of that crown of righteousness. Elders are those who are persistent. Next we see that elders, pastors, are those who are charged with guarding the people of God, guarding the people of God. Look with me at verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers or guardians to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort the truth to lure disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. So Paul says, you who are elders, who are pastors, who are overseers, who are guardians, guard! Be on guard 
And he says, first for yourselves. Interesting. It makes sense, though. If an elder or a pastor does not guard themselves from sin and from error, they can't do anything but teach sin and error. And so they must start with their own lives, their own holiness. This uh, echoes Paul's words in 1 Timothy 4.16 when he tells Timothy, pay close attention to your life and your doctrine or your teaching. Persevere in these things. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The greatest need the church has from its pastors is their holiness. Robert Murray McShane said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. And so elders must guard themselves. But also notice that this is in the plural because he's speaking to a group of elders. And so I also think it carries the sense that not only are elders to be individually guarding their lives, but they are to mutually guard one another's lives. Once more, pointing us to the importance of a plurality of elders. That your leaders would guard one another from both arrogance and error. To guard themselves that they might guard the flock. Well, who is the flock? Certainly it is, it is the church, but you know, I'm not responsible, Mike and David, we're not responsible for every Christian everywhere. You know, my, my friend Matt was here last week. He's in Philadelphia. I'm not in charge of shepherding Matt. I haven't been tasked with that. So who is it? And I think it's those who have been redeemed by God that are in covenant community with one another. What I mean by that is they are committed to one another in the local church, in covenant with one another, and committed to submitting to the leadership of that church. Those who preach the gospel and administer the sacraments faithfully. And so, in terms of our assembly here, I, or Mike and David, are responsible for you all, who are church members, part of the body of Christ. So the next question is, why? What do we need guarded from? For, for, from let me back up. Why? Why are we to guard the flock? And if you look in verse 20, 28, something really jumped out at me. It's be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God. And so why are elders to be on guard? Because this is the very reason they've been appointed elders. This is the very reason they've been appointed pastors, is to guard the flock. And notice who has appointed them as pastors ultimately. God, the Holy Spirit, has appointed elders that they might shepherd his church. And so you go, okay, uh, that's their role. And you go, well, from what? And Paul answers us, from wolves. Wolves is just poetic language. It's fitting with the, the metaphor here of sheep and shepherd, and now there are wolves that need to be guarded from. The wolves are false teachers primarily. And Paul's words here would come true. You can see it in his later letters. Wolves come in and they ravage the church at Ephesus. False teachers, though, they don't always look like false teachers right away. 
Paul even says, they'll raise up from your own number. They'll come from among you. Wolves sometimes wear sheep's clothing. And I want to say this because I I was thinking about this this week. False teachers are not always those who are standing up and teaching as I am. Oftentimes they're folks in, in Bible studies or in your life. They just, you know, they just have your ear and they're talking. They teach something little, just a little off, just a little twisted. You start to believe it. And little by little, you're drawn away from Christ and to them. Maybe an even more subtle kind of false teacher is the person who claims to be a Christian and then lives in disobedience. Did you know that when you claim to be a Christian, you are claiming to represent Jesus? And so if you say, I'm a Christian, and you continue to live in sin, you are teaching falsely to everybody around you who looks at you and says, oh, that's what a Christian looks like. There will be false teachers among us that need to be guarded against. So how? How do elders guard, how do pastors guard from wolves? First and foremost, teaching. You see that in verse 31? Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day, remember what I did, night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. Paul is saying, as he does in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. And so, pastors protect the flock from wolves by teaching faithfully God's word. A second way is by equipping God's people to guard one another. You too have the Holy Spirit. and You are learning. You should be able, hopefully, to identify some of these false doctrines. Identify that somebody else is caught in sin. And follow the pattern set out for us in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, that is, you Christians who have the Holy Spirit, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also will not be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So pastors, guard the church by teaching faithfully, by equipping the saints to guard one another. And then lastly, by church discipline. And what church discipline does is it identifies, in this case, a sheep that could potentially be a wolf, and it says, repent of your sin. And if said person is a Christian, they will respond to that medicine of church discipline with repentance and faith and be restored to the fold. But if perhaps they are a wolf, they will persist in unbelief. They will persist in sin and therefore be removed from the congregation. This makes sense, right? You don't put sheep and wolves in the same pen. The end is not good. The sheep are too valuable to share space with those who might kill them. You understand that the church 
is purchased with Jesus' own blood. You see that in verse 28? Jesus who says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, the Bible doesn't call Christians sheep because, you know, sheep are stupid and Christians, well, we're kind of stupid. Maybe you've heard that. That's terrible. That's not true. The Bible calls Christians sheep because it's an agrarian society and everybody would have been familiar with sheep. And sheep were valuable. Now, typically it's not good shepherding for the shepherd to die and then the sheep would just be left to their own. But Jesus lays down his life for his church in order to guard us from God's wrath. Jesus lays down his life for the church, knowing he will take it up again. And that ultimately, we will be protected from God's eternal punishment for our sin. Indeed, Jesus, who is the good shepherd, is also the Lamb of God and our substitute. Friends, the, the creator of the world has died for you. You are valuable to God. God, it's so simple. God loves you. you know, if somebody asked me the greatest truth that I have learned, you know, not that I'm super old or super well studied, but what's the best truth I've learned in my whole life? I think the answer is simple. Right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Church, you are valuable. God loves you. Jesus has died for you. And this is why good pastors and good, good elders protect the church through faithful teaching, equipping the body to guard one another, and through promoting the practice of church discipline. Because God's people are valuable. And they want to follow the example of Christ. Willing to lay down their very lives for the sheep. Pastors are guardians. Pastors are also dependent on God's gracious word. Look at verse 32. Paul says, And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified or are set apart for God. Just in case you thought that the growth of the church was contingent upon how skilled or charismatic you are, elder pastor, it is not. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. It's the Lord who watches over his house. Or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so Paul is saying, I am not entrusting you to your own skill or to your own ability to do all of these things perfectly. I know that you are imperfect men, but I am trusting you to God who is able to grow your church, who is able to keep you, who is able to guard you until your course is finished. God is able to give you everything you need. Depend on him and his word. Likewise, 
just regular church member, depend on God and his word. It's really simple. Paul continues. He shows us that elders are generous. In verses 33 through 35. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it's necessary to help the weak by laboring like this, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We see here that, that elders are not people who are greedy for money. That indeed they follow Paul's example and work hard so that they might be generous. They might help the weak. Again, this example is not just for elders, it's for all of us. All of us ought to desire to help the weak and be willing to work hard to do it. I think we would do well to consider ways we might help those who are weak among us and weak in our community. Maybe it means volunteering somewhere. Pregnancy support center or food pantry. I don't know what it means for you. We should think of ways that we are helping the weak and the poor. If we are not, it is a dereliction of duty, both for the pastor and for the parish. Elders are those who follow Jesus' example, who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Jesus, who gave his life that we might receive eternal life. Lastly, having concluded his speech, we get another example from the life of Paul about what an elder or a pastor should look like. Verse 36. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. There are tears, kisses, and hugs, and grieving. Right? Notice what they don't say, or what we don't read. And all of them thought in their hearts, praise God, we are rid of Paul. He has been the bane of our existence. He preached until midnight in Troas. He's done even worse here. No, they are saddened. We are not going to see Paul again. Paul who has taught us the gospel. Paul who has lived among us as our brother. Who has taught us what it is to pastor. Friends, we ought to love our pastors and elders. We should learn from them and follow their leadership as they are guarding the church. And it should be our joy to obey Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I'm very thankful. Uh, Mike and David and I are very thankful that this is a command that is obeyed here at Rockfish. It is our joy to serve you as elders. It's our delight to be your pastors and to do our best to lead and guard the church. As you know, we are imperfect. Some of you are like, amen, preach. We are imperfect. But we are following Christ and we are grateful for this great privilege he's entrusted to us. Let us all aim to be like the good shepherd who took on flesh and tabernacled among us so that we might not ever have to be apart from the presence of God, who courageously declared all of God's word, not permitting that even a dot would disappear from it. Jesus, who was persistent unto death when he was bound on a cross and generously gave his life for his beloved, Jesus, who at the word of God has been raised from the dead. Jesus, who gives us life. Jesus, who sustains us. Jesus, who is coming again for us. Friends, let us look to Christ, our burden bearer, as the ultimate good shepherd, as we follow him together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a challenge to all of us to follow Jesus more intimately. Pray that the goal of our lives would not be to have long lives, but to have full lives lived to the glory of Jesus. Pray that you would help us to understand more of the grace of Jesus so that we might become more generous, more gracious ourselves. Jesus, though he was rich for our sake, became poor so that by his poverty we could become rich. Indeed, that we could become sons and daughters who inherit every spiritual blessing so that we could become those who are indwelt by your Holy Spirit, God. Those who are able to cry out to you as Father. Lord, thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.